Welcome back, everybody. This is another episode of Trek Wars at OSU. That's Oregon State University. My name is Dr. Joseph Orozco, and I'm the co-director of the Inares Project for Alternative Futures at OSU. Today, a conversation about Star Trek and communism. We all know that the economy of the future in the Star Trek universe is very different than the one that we have now. Uh, in some iterations of the Star Trek universe, there's no money. Uh, Questions about poverty, war, hunger, and want have been eliminated through technology. And so how people interact with one another in the future in Star Trek is very, very different. My guest today is someone who tries to use the Star Trek universe and its picture of economics as a way of being able to critique our current material political economy today. My guest today is Will Wen. And he is known uh, on the internet as the Star Trek communist. And I've invited him here to talk a little bit about the work that he does, which is going online and talking about Star Trek and communism. Uh, he is uh, 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 involved with the organization socialistrevolution.org, which is part of marxist.com. Uh, but he has also been a writer uh, for Star Trek uh, blogs and magazines, and he is a professional fan. Uh, and so he's joined me today to talk about the economics of Star Trek. So, Will, welcome and thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, well, thanks for having me. This is a real treat, real pleasure to do so. Thanks. So I want to get right into this with you. You know, I found you uh, uh, and followed you uh, on Twitter and uh, online uh, because of your handle. So you're known as the Star Trek communist. And you really made a name for yourself in the past few years in the Star Trek fandom by just posting images of you in these really fantastic Star Trek uniforms. I have to congratulate you. You have one of the greatest collections of uniforms that I've seen of a lot of fans. Um, and, you know, you go on and you start talking about socialism. Uh, you talk about oppression and injustice, and you talk about the, the communism inherent in the Star Trek universe. Uh, I note that you do uh, film nights in which you, uh, online, that you talk about uh, Star Trek and uh, then talk about communism as it's portrayed in some of the films. So it's clear that you're a dedicated Star Trek fan, and it's also that you are a very dedicated socialist. So I want to unpack both of those things uh, with you today, but I want to know first, how did you become interested in Star Trek? How did you become a Star Trek fan? Right. Uh, so I think I uh, came into Star Trek with a very particular generation, if you will, uh, the one watching the next generation on syndication. And what's so great about Star Trek uh, over its now 54 years and counting uh, is there's so many entry points. Of course, there's the, there's the original folks that watched it, you know, on black and white TVs, color TVs, and it was a, a brand new thing. Watched it, you know, the animated series, and when it was canceled, got popular. And of course, Next Generation, and then even the new movies, right? The new entry points. So for me, I watched it, you know, when it was on uh, growing up, it was kind of... Um, my parents allowed me to watch it because, you know, it, it was a little more highbrow, right? A lot of talking, a lot of those wonderful aspects we love about Star Trek. Right. Uh, but of course, it had the, the, that cool the aspect of it being in space and the technology. Uh, I love Jordy LaForge growing up because I had glasses very early on as a child. <laughs> that glasses right. in fourth grade, loved Jordy, knew him from reading Rainbow, like so many of others. Yeah. And from there, I think 
had developed a, a real love for it. And then later on, you know, of course, you use that as an entry point to, you know, for me, Deep Space Nine, my personal favorite, but I love all Star Treks. But we, of course, we have our preferred favorite ones, but I love the new iterations. I love Picard, I love Lower Decks. Um, and what's so great about it is uh, it's, there's so much of it. There's so much to chew on. And I think growing up, Sometimes you you like the simplicity sometimes of a Star Wars, and I'm a Star Wars fan too, as quote unquote blasphemous as that may be, but you know I like it as well. Um, but as you grow up, you know there there are many layers to Star Trek, and many flavors to Star Trek. Um, but it's all kind of at its core the same type of story, same type of universe, and uh, it gives you a lot to chew on, to debate, to talking about it. You know I like to joke around like. Watching Star Trek is like 10% of it, then talking about it is 90% of it, right? Like talking with other fans, talking about why you like it, why you hate it, all that kind of stuff. That's the, that's the fun part of it and why it, I think for me, it has been the most durable fandom. Although, you know, I'm a fan of all sorts of, of sci-fi and, and, and fantasy and stuff like that. But Star Trek is always kind of like the, the first love, if you will, that's kind of stuck around. So what is it about the the universe in particular that calls to you, right? Because I know that, you know, whenever you ask Star Trek fans about wh why they like it, there's always some personal story involved in it. And uh, uh, you seem to be saying that part of what attracts you to it is is the vision, the the picture of uh, the, the, the universe. And so what is it about that universe that calls to you? Uh, well, what uh, I'll use Star Wars as a good foil for first, you know, Star Wars, right, is a galaxy... Uh, far, far away, a long, long time ago, right? Uh, and of course, Star Trek is ostensibly humanity in the future, right? In the far future, but not too far future. And it's the the idea that humanity has figured it out, right? Or has the ability to figure it out and can work together to figure things out. Uh, that's kind of a, a good th um, through point through all the iterations, right? Whether it's on a starship, mostly on a starship, one on a space station, what have you. Um, that you know, it is a sometimes uh, a motley crew, sometimes not so motley, but a crew nonetheless working together, and that crew works within a larger milieu of, of a larger federation, where they're interacting with other people, trying their best, right? At at its core, trying their best to really figure these things out, and everyone has the kind of good intentions, uh, and of course, set in a very um, very fun, exciting um, setting, right? You could have the the action adventure you could have the mystery you could have the holodeck episodes you can have the really talky ones the really silly ones um so then it also has that versatility so it can tell all sorts of types of stories um so i think that for me is kind of why i was drawn to it is that you could kind of really especially when it was syndicated watch a lot of those types of stories just pick it up and like man what are they going to do today uh, but knowing that they're going to figure it out at the end uh and uh it, it's a it's a feel-good type way. I mean, it, it, it sounds corny, but Star Trek has a corniness that is is genuine, that's earned, that I feel like that's kind of what people want, right? The corniness attract of, of, of saying, we can we can figure it out. Right, right. I think that that's right. Uh, uh, we've talked about that before here on uh, Trek Wars, right? That there's a certain kind of hopeful vision, but it's one that's grounded at least in some kind of realism about the potentials of human beings being able to work together. Um, so now turn to the other sort of uh, leaf in uh, your cap, right? Uh, you are a socialist organizer. So how did you become interested in socialist activism and advocacy? Uh, what does socialism mean to you? Right. 
so I think uh, similarly how I came into to Star Trek was in a lot of ways a kind of a, a generational, very specific to uh, an environment or uh, uh, a place in time. I think uh, the same could be said about my politics. There's a whole generation of us. I'm an older millennial, but I think it affects everyone, even even boomers, even um, older folks, right, is the crisis of capitalism, right? And within the last few years, ever since, um, in reality, uh, since Occupy, since um, the, the first Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson 2014, the climate, um, the climate strikes, the, the fight for, against climate change, amidst um, you know the original the quote unquote original recession of 2008, but the continuing um, recession now with the pandemic, um, it it has shattered any illusions that particularly the younger generations, but it affects again like I said all generations, the illusions that capitalism is working for them uh, because in a lot of ways right we quote unquote did things by the book went to school uh, accumulated debt. But the argument was, if you accumulate this debt, you'll pay it back because you'll get good jobs. You'll, you'll be able to, you know, quote unquote, buy a home, although you're really, you know, buying it from a bank. The bank owns it. You pay the bank back. Um, you know, you, you, you know, we can solve these uh, problems of climate change, of racism, of inequality. Um, inherently, although things are not perfect, things are getting better. And that was the hope in a lot of ways of kind of the um, after the Cold War. The Francis Fukuyama history, you know, end of history idea, right? You know, we can improve ourselves through technocracy, through data, through, through the application of science. Inherently, not bad things, right? The application of these tools to, to do these things. But in a way, that actually has always existed to kind of obfuscate the real um, forces at play in society, which is, of course, class struggle, class forces. Of course, I, you know, the best teacher in life is experiences. So coming through this, coming through you know, especially in my generation, going from recession, knowing nothing but recession, recession and then depression and, uh, you know, constant um, attacks on our livelihoods, our, our you know, very existence, not to mention fighting for basic social rights, right? Um, amidst, you know, climate change, amidst, you know, being saddled in debt, you know, can't, you know, can't afford rent in major cities. You got to live like eight, 10 people, you know, to, uh, to, you know, a building, an apartment, right? All those types, you know, not being able to um, afford medical care, right? You go bankrupt, especially in the United States. All those types of things was the backdrop for an entire generation of people. Uh, and they, I think for us, you know, they didn't have um, some of the, the effects of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, all those types of things, right? We keep on saying, you know, um, you know, in communism and socialism, they have to wait in line. They have to wait in line for goods and services. And then literally this year, waiting in line for toilet paper, waiting in line for, you know, bread, milk, eggs, all those all those things they said that would be, hey, you know what, as, as bad as things are, not as bad as in communism where you have to wait in line and rationing. That's literally happening before our eyes, right? In places that are supposedly, you know, beyond the quote unquote ideology, right? Just the facts, data driven, right? And I think that radicalization has affected people uh, on such a wide swath, right? And it's that generational change, but it's a really symptomatic of, of the crisis of capitalism affecting the entire world, all generations. So, you know, I think I started getting, you know, back into politics, you know, with around Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, but at the same time, seeing the limitations, what happened not only to Bernie in 2016, but happened in 2020 as well, right? 
uh, Bernie's campaign seems like a lifetime ago. In fact, early 2020 seems like a lifetime ago. So much has happened since then. Um, so I think there's a great line that Lenin has where he says, you know, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And in a lot of ways, that's very much 2020, um, a, a lifetime and accumulation of this frustration. And, and I think people seeing like the people that are, are quote unquote in charge don't know what they're doing. They can't even protect themselves from getting up uh, from a disease, right? We see our leaders, right? From Trump to Bolsonaro to Boris Johnson getting the coronavirus themselves, right? They can't protect themselves. And yet they probably will survive the disease, unlike many of the working class, right? It shows you that anger of like, who really bears the brunt of, of all the terrible things in our system? And I think that's that anger, that frustration um, that led people to kind of say, you know, it's not just about um, question. It's not just about, hey, vote blue no matter who, because, you know, we've been doing that. California is a deep blue state. Uh, Democratic supermajority, Gavin Newsom's governor, Kamala Harris is a senior senator. The state's on fire, right? The entire state's on is on fire, and um, the, the the most the cities with one of the most ra highest levels of income inequality and, and and ridiculous rent and homeless, you know, they they uh, brutalize homeless people are in San Francisco, are in Los Angeles, in these deep blue cities, right? And um, and they also have one of the highest prison populations. And the country, right? This is California, right? Um, so again, I think these um, circumstances are kind of forcing people to realize, like, wait a second, it's maybe not just about the people we quote unquote put into office. Maybe it's a lot deeper than that. And that's just in the United States, let alone the, all the, the social uh, ferment that's happening worldwide. So for me, I think that's how I started to understand kind of the, the politics of class struggle. Yeah, I mean, I just want to echo what you were saying. I, I've seen this, uh, you know, uh, in my own classes that I teach. I teach political philosophy quite uh, regularly. And in my intro courses, I've noticed a change, let's say, over the past five to maybe 10 years or so, where a lot of young people, roughly what we would call Gen Z, right, anyone who is now 18 to 24, maybe 30, uh, uh, I, I've seen just a change in attitudes whenever we start talking about uh, political economy, and we start reading Marx for many of them for the first time. Uh, when I started teaching this material, say more than 20 uh, years ago or so, there was always a real big deep resistance to the idea that anything that Marx might be saying could be realistic or or make sense. Even the criticism of capitalism just didn't ring true for a lot of people. But this has not been the case for me in my classes that I've seen in the past five years or so. I see students coming in to my classes already having some kind of uh, knowledge, interestingly, of Marxist texts. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't know where they're getting this from necessarily, maybe on their own. Maybe uh, there's kind of a fervor of this kind of literature proliferating around. But I think it's right is that people are looking for ways to talk about the reality that they're experiencing as young people, one in which they feel a kind of a sense of frustration and hopelessness with their political leaders and a, a sense that uh, these crises that we're experiencing are not just occasional, but really deep-seated structural problems, right? And so they're searching for kinds of answers. So I think that uh, my experience, at least with folks who I, I teach, uh, mirrors the kind of stuff that you're talking about. So this leads me to the, the, this question is, well, what is it about socialism as a vision of a possible future for humanity that attracts you? Why do you think that these crises and these frustrations can be something that uh, gets ameliorated or solved by socialism? I mean, that's a great question. Um, 
So I think a lot of people, uh, of course, have mis, um, misunderstandings of what socialism is, what communism is. Are they too different, right? And, you know, and capitalism, right? For a very long time, you know, even um, the, the capitalists themselves wouldn't want to use the word capitalism, right? They would use the terms market economy, the free market, uh, what, you know, they don't want to actually give it a name. So, you know, for me, why socialism is the answer, why I also consider myself a communist is because there's really no difference between the two. And if you look at, you know, what, what the Communist Manifesto had stated in other works is socialism is a transition stage between capitalism and communism. And to define communism is, 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 is using its original definition is it's a stateless classist society. And uh, socialism is the transition to that, right, where the workers are in power. They, they, they have a worker state and they use the, the apparatus of the state uh, in, their, in their control in order to uh, create the conditions where, where the state can wither away, like Lenin wrote in the State Revolution, where classes can wither away because uh, there is such a superabundance of goods and services. The productive technique in society has developed to such a point where you can provide for everyone where classes no longer have any distinctions, let alone antagonisms, right? So, you know, when, when the working class truly uh, reaps the, the, the fruits of its labor, right? And there is no have and have nots, right? Then what does class mean anymore? What does a state need? Why does it need to exist? Because as a Marxist, a state exists to uh, mediate between two oppositional classes. One class is in control over the other and they need a state to kind of um, um, mediate things to keep, right? And that's why we need a worker state to kind of, to prevent a counter-revolution from the capitalists and to, and to create those conditions where a state's no longer possible. That's kind of the real, you know, uh, you know, 45 second spiel that I'll do, but, but basically that's kind of the overall arching idea is that history goes through uh, uh, historical material processes, just like in science, right? There are things that are observable. So people often say, and actually there's a great Ursula Gwynpote actually, where about the divine right of kings saying uh, for a very long time, right, that seemed the divine right of kings was unassailable until it wasn't, right? And that's actually absolutely correct. That's actually true. We, Of course, I refer to feudalism, right? What we see in Game of Thrones, all that kind of stuff, right? That was how society was organized for quite some time until it wasn't, until capitalism kind of came onto the stage of saying, well, you no longer need to be a peasant working this land. You no longer need to be a serf working this land and your family working this land until forever, right? You can actually sell your labor power to another person. You can leave this pot of land. You can actually, you know, have uh, some, some, some individualized rights, right? Um, it's not just tied to a monarch, right? Um, that was a historical development. And in, in the same vein, feudalism also passed into the dustbin of history. I would say the same thing with capitalism, right? It has reached a point where it no longer plays uh, any progressive role. The productive forces that have been developed, you know, exponentially, uh, and it's really now a fetter to human development, right? So socialism is the next stage in the sense of saying uh, it's the working class who creates everything of value in society worldwide, right? Uh, you know, the boss needs you more than you need the boss, but the boss calls the shots, right? They say right. jump, you say how high. Right. But that's what we're saying is the working class in a lot of ways already runs society. They produce all the goods and services that we use. Uh, there's a great line by a Marxist theoretician called Ted Grant, where he says, uh, not a light bulb turns on, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of the working class. And that's very true. And th that's the role of, of, of Marxists is to really make, sh to make clear 
to the working class, they're actually they're part of a class. That's the thing that's so wild about all of this is that the workers actually don't understand they're actually part of a larger class, the working class. The capitalist class, the ruling class, they are absolutely class conscious. They know exactly where their money comes from. They know exactly what they need to do, which is why they have a police and a military and they have all the ideologies of, you know, hustle and grind, you know, you know, the American dream, that kind of stuff to kind of keep people confused, distracted. They use racism as well to divide workers around the world as well. So for Marxists, we say you already kind of run society, but you don't truly run society. So why don't the workers be in control? We get to decide uh, how we distribute the resources um, to really meet um, the needs of humanity. And uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, there's an argument that you can only get there with technology. There's a Star Trek kind of an argument that says, well, the only reason why Star Trek can do this, why the Federation can do this is because of replicators. Right. Uh, and and uh, until we get this magic box, we can't do anything anything closing, approximating caring for people. To which I would say that's a very uh, insidious dodge. It's a very disingenuous dodge because we already have all of the technology and the capability to provide for everyone, to make sure that no one dies of, of hunger, thirst, exposure, have met basic medical care. It's not that hard. It's actually not like warp speed. We can actually make sure that there's no one homeless and dies of not having a meal. The problem is who controls those goods and services. And that gets to the idea of private property or rather the private ownership of property. And that's why socialism is the natural answer. It's like, so who owns the means of production in society? That's the question. We already, we can already do what we need to do. It's just, we don't actually control the thing that matters. Right. No, thanks. That's a really good, uh, that's a really good uh, description of, of, I think of, you know, the historical materialist perspective. Um, so I'm interested in bringing this together with your Star Trek advocacy, right? So why do you think that Star Trek is the appropriate place to pursue socialist organizing? I mean, the image typically of the socialist is of the guy with the linen cap in the park on a, on a soapbox talking to a crowd, uh, yelling wildly about class consciousness and class struggle. Uh, and, uh, you, on the other hand, are online in your different uniforms talking about socialism as uh, a vision that mirrors, you know, the Star Trek universe. So why did you decide that this kind of, of political work was something that you wanted to do through the lens of Star Trek? Yeah, so, well, you know, full disclosure, I do have a Lenin cap. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, and I, when I'm not wearing my Star Trek cosplay, I do have a... A good Glennon cap. Um, so I think Star Trek is, um, it's a very great launching point to be able to talk about these things because it has that blank canvas, if you will. Um, but at the same time, its setting and its premise uh, necessitates really revolu revolutionary conclusions, but it never explicitly states those revolutionary conclusions, never really states to borrow a phrase from enterprise, how to get from there to here, right? And they never really say, yes, right? Right. it's kind of like, okay, right. the Vulcans come and we somehow get better. Uh, but for me as a Marxist, that's kind of great because it allows me to provide that explanation through, to fill in the gaps, if you will, to say, okay, how do we get to a place where there's a one world government, right? So a united earth is actually a very radical notion, right? Imagine, you know, you know, communists say, hey, you know, workers of the world unite. We need to have a socialist federation, right? The communist international, all those types of things. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, 
the Federation did it, right? There's a one world government. There are no national borders, right? That's a very big break from capitalism. Capitalism requires national borders. They require workers to be hemmed in on these artificial borders. So to even get to a united earth, which is in a lot of ways a prerequisite for, you know, first contact, right? You have to basically have, a, of, I would say, have had a socialist revolution, right? Let alone develop the technological ability to develop faster than light travel, right? So that's how I would say it is like, do you really think that uh, we could actually achieve the quality or the prerequisites for first contact or anything in, in Star Trek? If we don't eliminate private property or the ownership of, of people, the ability to exploit and command people, right? Um, and I think when you use it in those types of terms, I think people start to get it. You know, you know, Dr. Crusher, Julian Bichet, they don't charge a premium or copay when they give you a hypo spray, right? right. Uh, they don't seem to charge rent. Right? They don't seem to have you know, a landlord come, hey, you know, where's your where's your Starfleet rent to be on the Starship, right? Um, you know, they, they provide for people, right? Especially in the early PNG, right? Um, for all its um, roughness of the early next generation, first couple seasons when it was very clear that it was a different system. They never say socialism. They never say those types of things, but they're very clear about saying, this is a new world. We're beyond greed. We're beyond want. You know, the episode of the neutral zone basically chewed out that, you know, yeah. Wall Street broker guy's like, what are you talking right. about? You know, right. my assets. Like, and um, that are those really um, interesting points that you can take that you can, can launch off of and say, okay, do you really think that, you know, as long as the Jeff Bezos is there, do you think you can actually develop a warp drive or rather, or any of these types of things, as opposed to, uh, you know, just having our data sold to us again, or having, you know, very, you know, intrusive advertising. That's the best that capitalists can do. They can actually provide for people. Um, so Star Trek is that nice little, um, uh, environment, but of course, you know, there's uh, there's that great episode, Deep Space Nine Bar Association, where Rom literally quotes the Communist Manifesto, quotes Marx, right. "Is the world unite?" Right. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, that's a great a great uh, that's like uh, Exhibit One A for me when I say, okay, the the the, the universe is 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 ripe for a Marxist uh, analysis. It's, it's it just doesn't say it explicitly, really. What I what I find interesting about what you're saying here, right? Uh, uh, when you were talking previously about the the productive capacities that capitalism has created in the world today, uh, that in some sense we already can do many of the kinds of things that exist in the Star Trek universe. Um, what's interesting about thinking about getting from here to there is that, of course, right? Star Trek is kind of a a post-apocalyptic story. Right. In order to get from here to there, at least in the lore, there's got to be a whole series of really disastrous outcomes for humanity. Of course, there's the eugenics war where science runs amok and creates these uh, these superhuman villains, Khan and so forth, that devastate the planet for a while. And then that leads, of course, to this nuclear holocaust in World War III sometime in the 22nd century. But in between, there's all this poverty that we see you know displayed in uh ds9's uh, two-part episode uh past tense right well, an episode i know that you like a lot um right so the the story from the 21st to the 23rd century is one full of war and and destruction and almost the extinction of the human race before we get to that uh get to that place of plenty and equality um does this bother you at all when you talk about Star Trek? I mean, there's a there's a certain kind of Marxist theory, Posadism, that you know says at first all of this is going to have to go to hell before we can really build socialism. Um, 
do you think that uh, that's that sort of Star Trek story as a post-apocalyptic uh, narrative get in the way of this kind of socialist organizing that you're doing? Uh, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's another great question. I think, um, so two things. One, the first thing is, uh, there's also another great quote uh, that I don't know who it's attributed to, but um, it's a great quote nonetheless, where it says, uh, uh, liberals are those that don't have class consciousness. You know, it's easier for them to actually see the end of the world than actually a better world, right? A, a great, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a great um, sentiment saying that it's easier for some people to say, you know what, it's all going to go to Mad Max. It's all going to go to some dystopia than it is for a better world. In a lot of ways, you actually see that represented in our popular culture, right? There's not a coincidence, right? In a lot of ways, popular culture is reflective of some material conditions, right? So mm -hmm. from The Walking Dead, from The Expanse, Battlestar Galactica, which I enjoy all those shows, don't get me yeah. wrong. But they are very dystopian, right? It's like the end of the world. What can we do, right? The last one standing, all those types of things, right? Yeah. Star Trek, in a lot of ways, is that optimistic future, right? But you're yeah. also right in saying, well, the optimistic future also presupposes a World War III, right? Presupposes all those types of things, which is a good point. Uh, I would say there's a point of which you do have to kind of um, not follow canon so slavishly or so closely to say, hey, it is, you know, a roadmap. I mean, it's not. That's not a direct one-to-one. Yeah. -one. Yeah. It's useful up to a certain point, and you can make it work in a lot of ways, actually. But up to a certain point, you also have to explain that, uh, you know, that is that is not necessary. That doesn't mean that there won't be hardship, there won't be struggle. There has to be, right? The, the, the ruling class will not give up their power willingly. But at the same time, um, we also take the, as Marx as we take an approach that it is not, uh, everything is not determinative, right? So those things don't have to get bad in order to get better. Right. Or the idea of you hear a lot. Well, that's just human nature, right? Human nature. Yeah. They're supposed to be greedy. They're supposed, we're supposed yeah. to hate each other. You got to fight the inner beast. A lot of our popular culture also uses that trope, too. Right. Well, yeah. we're all inherently bad. We just got to yeah. fight it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I would say that's not true. Um, it's 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 actually it's everything is still up for grabs in the sense that history is still being very much written as we speak right now. Uh, the working class has that role to play. It has that decisive role to play in history. Uh, that's not, of course, explained in Star Trek, but how could it? Because in reality, Star Trek is also a TV show written and owned by CBS and Paramount. And it's gone through a lot of iterations as well. So it's it's written from a perspective of, of when liberalism still had, I would say, a... Um, "Quote unquote final frontier." It had an imagination. That's why in the '60s it was so optimistic, because it had that liberalism where where it, everything was more optimistic in that post-war period. I would argue there's a reason why it's a lot more pessimistic recently. It's because it represents the, the pessimism of liberalism to resolve all these problems. Right? Mm -hmm. Nothing can be resolved. Things will, you know, kind of like that Balsar Galactica idea. Like things um, come full circle. Right? You know, history yeah. repeats itself. That kind of stuff. It's not true. Only, history only repeats itself in terms of the bad things because the working class and those that need to play that decisive role didn't play that decisive role. Nothing is determinative. So, so for me, I would say that um, World War III is not inevitable. It's something that uh, arguably, from a Marxist perspective, actually uh, not, not likely because it would mean the destruction of all the capitalist um, productive forces. They can't sell something to an irradiated planet. It's not in their interest to fight those types of things. So they'll fight in different ways, of course. That doesn't mean there's not so suffering and all those mm -hmm. other things. Arguably, climate change is kind of the big question right now. 
is uh, while all of the wrangling happens with the pandemic and, and trade wars and what have you, there's a there's a climate crisis that's happening, and that can't be solved within uh, you know recycling more. It can't be solved by you know, reducing our, our our you know water usage on an individual basis. It's not done by having more canvas tote bags when you go shopping. That's the liberal answers, right? It's really about the workers coming to power and controlling those key industries that pollute, shutting them down, and then transitioning ourselves to a true renewable energy while making sure that the people that need to transition to that um, new economy are not left out on the streets, not, their livelihoods aren't threatened. We can do that by expropriating the capitalists, right? They have all the money in the world. Why don't we just displace them from power, which presupposes the question of a socialist revolution, which is a word that sounds scary to people, but it really just means uh, a change in social classes, right? One class over another. And that's what, we try to, or, or, that's what we're trying to do to say, it doesn't take uh, worldwide devastation in order to, for people to come to these types of conclusions. Mm. Uh, and um, it is a failing of liberalism to say that, you know what, we're going to throw in the towel. It has to require all this death and whatever, uh, because their belief is only predicated on an individual basis, right? Only if, if we just change our behavior, if we could somehow um, convince our, our, our corporate overlords to be better people, be better citizens, they'll be better. That's not true. That that's actually not how class struggle history works. But that's how Star Trek kind of is uh, lacking in its overall analysis. As much as I love Star Trek, you know, some some things are you know they're they're you can't reconcile the two. Just like in past tense, like you mentioned, uh, love that episode, love Gabriel Bell. But in a way, the ending of that episode is also very uh, is a liberal cop out as well. It's mm-hmm. Gabriel Bell saying, you know what, if I just expose the conditions within the sanctuary districts that somehow the governor and, will and the, and the ruling authorities will will clean up their act. They will be shocked. Their conscience will be shocked. And that's kind of what happens. They say that's kind of what happens. People will know what happens and then start changing. That's an incredibly naive and liberal and idealistic perspective of how power works. Because guess what? A lot of people now have access to YouTube, Twitter, TV. They see the suffering. They don't care. The capitalists do not care. And it's not a question of appealing to their conscience, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, you use Star Trek as a way to explain these things, right? You know, you explain like, okay, yeah, 2024 seems very prescient, right? And around the corner, these conditions are not resolved. How do you resolve it? And um, for us, it's about building a revolutionary organization worldwide uh, that can really uh, give the working class the confidence in its own power and make it realize that it's part of the class on and of itself. That's how you get to what you need to do to, in order to start, you know, getting towards that better world, fighting for that better world. Um, and you don't need luckily to, to wait for world war three and nuclear Armageddon for that to happen. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you, you talked about that in that way. That's something that I think has always bothered me, particularly about the, the past tense uh, episode, right? The sort of, the episode that uh, once you just sort of get all this information out on the net, like they do, that uh, people's yeah. conscience will somehow change, and that apathy that they talk about earlier on in that that episode that allows all these homeless people, thousands of people across the country, to be warehoused in these in these uh, regions will somehow be solved. I, I I find those kinds of endings in Star Trek happening quite a bit. Is that if people just know 
uh, about how bad things are, then they will want to change. It's just a matter of knowledge uh, and people's apathy is just a matter of ignorance. And that's always really sort of bothered me about the way that Star Trek sort of wraps up uh, these social problems that seem really, really, really deep. And so uh, I like the, the what you're saying here in the sense that the, this has to be something about real conscious organizing and solidarity amongst uh, folks uh, rather than a change in the ideas of the elite to make social change happen. Um, so this this makes me uh, makes me wonder. You mentioned a little bit that um, you see some of the more recent re iterations of Star Trek, like Discovery, Picard, maybe even Lower Decks, as reflections on uh, the uh, decadence of of, of uh, political liberalism or of late capitalism. Um, do you see these 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 later uh, iterations of Star Trek as being good for your socialist advocacy, or do they have a different tone that makes it difficult to talk about? A, a socialist future. So uh, I would say it, it it doesn't make it harder per se, but I think there are some there are some Star Trek fans that you know you know for better and for worse will say, hey, you know, this is not New Trek is not uh, original Star Trek. It's not true Star Trek. It's not real Star Trek. It doesn't have the heart and soul and whatever. To which I would say, you know. Star Trek has always been a commercial product as well. It has these contradictions as well. Um, it had to kind of walk this line of being able to kind of have this general social message, but in reality still kind of keep things um, in a, a fun action adventure format in order to sell product and all that kind of stuff. We, I, we understand that. Uh, I think hopefully Star Trek fans will also understand that as well. There are limitations to um, what you can do with Star Trek as a, as a, as a product, right? And, um, the recent iterations of it, I don't think necessarily means that, uh, you know, a optimistic or hopeful future is, is, um, tossed aside. It also, it just, it just necessitates actually having a, 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 a Marxist analysis to understand like what is really being said here. Right. Uh, and, um, and it is, again, it is part, Star Trek does come from, from a liberal mindset. So the idea, especially in Picard, which I do enjoy Picard a lot. I think they did a heck of a job that first season. I know a lot of people are like, oh, this is not real Trek. Where's the optimism? You know, for me, it actually reminds me a lot of, 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 of Trotsky's revolution betrayed, right? I'm a Trotskyist, I'm a Leninist, but it comes from the, the perspective of, of the revolution has been betrayed. Picard is a man who said deals. And I think that episode, that first episode in particular is phenomenal, right? He's like, this is no longer Starfleet, right? You know, what we did uh, was um, an abdication. It was fantastic. And it, it, in a lot of ways, reminds me of what happened to the first worker state in the history of the world, which is the Soviet Union. Why did it degenerate to Stalinism? Why did it degenerate? Why did it collapse? What did it achieve? Why, why do we, I mean, you see me on my social media, why do I still talk about the Bolsheviks and the, uh, why do I still use a hammer and sickle? as an idea, as a concept, um, because it, they, they belie still important concepts. Um, the idea of the hammer is the industrial um, urban populations, the working class, in unity with the rural working class peasantry. It's a union of the urban and rural working classes together. It's actually still incredibly important because, as you see in our politics and the politics around the world, there are massive gaps of, of, of between wealth in the rural and urban areas, but there are some impoverished uh, rural areas, right? And, you know, it's very convenient for capitalists to use racism and nationalism to say, hey, you know, you know, immigrants or black people or whatever, they're the ones taking your money, whatever, when in reality, 
regardless of where you are, urban, rural areas, suburbs now is have has increasing poverty, we're all being exploited, right? And the idea behind the hammer and sickle, which predates the Soviet Union, uh, by the way, is it's still important now more than ever. We may not hammer everything. We may not have sickles, if you will, but we work on keyboards, work in factories, you know, the and, and there are people still in the fields picking our produce, right? The unity between urban and rural is, is more important now than ever. Same thing with um, the newer iterations of Trek, right? I think liberalism, because they view Star Trek, they view uh, the Federation, um, deep down, I think they know. They Deep down, I think they feel, they feel that it can never be achieved. It's a utopia, right? The Federation is a utopia, it can never be achieved. I think deep down, a lot of liberals feel that way. It's aspirational, right? Star Trek is just aspirational. We, we constantly better ourselves, but we never quite get there. Kind of similar to how data always tries to be human up until that very point, right? I get where they're coming from with that. I get it. But at the same time, that's also, when you think about it, a very deeply pessimistic message. Like, I don't watch Star Trek, and I don't, I'm not a communist because I think it's just aspirational. Like, I want a better world, right? You know, we don't have actually all the time to think because the world is actually in the, in the balance, right? So it is not aspirational. So what does that mean when it's just not aspirational, right? It means that you need to understand things in all of its contradictions. And this, and how we view the Soviet Union is actually the perfect way to look at all these contradictions, right? For me, it was a degenerated worker state. It was a worker state in the sense that the working class was able to take power and hold power for the first time in history. They're able to abolish capitalism and abolish landlordism, take a country that was a semi-feudal place into uh, the second leading superpower and beat the United States into space. But also at the same time, it degenerated into a bureaucracy, right? Under Stalin, uh, it became a totalitarian caricature of socialism, right? But does that mean we throw away the baby with the bathwater, which is what I think a lot of what um, academics, uh, not not you per se, but just kind of like liberal, uh, Francis Fukuyama type and the history type. So there's, there's no longer any class struggle, Marxist idea, that's, that's for... That's sort of, you know, um, Dickensian time. It's no longer applicable in anything. It's far more applicable now, more than ever, right? The idea is that uh, things can be contradictory. The Soviet Union could have achieved many gains because of uh, the nationalization of the economy, the workers being in control for the most part, although they don't have direct uh, workers' control. That's where the word Soviet comes from. It's a Russian for council, factory council. That's what it originally was, was factory council a union of Soviet factory councils, right? But at the same time, it degenerated into uh, a bureaucracy. It degenerated into something that uh, was opposite. Um, and I think Picard is a great example of that, right? The Federation is still worth defending, right? Starfleet's value is still worth defending, but at some point, something happened. And it actually is a good explanation as to what is the Federation, right? I would say it's, it's kind of like a space the degenerated space worker state, if you want to be really technical about it, you have all the gains of uh, post-scarcity, of a replicator, uh, providing people's needs, right? But you have a pretty top-heavy bureaucracy, right? You have, admirals are pretty bad. Like, you can count the number of good admirals on one hand, um, but pretty yeah, much, pretty much they're all bad. Yeah. Um, there's a Section 31, right, which seems to be pretty nefarious, right? Uh, and, you know, and in Lower Decks, which I also love too, there's a there's a lot of direct uh, references to nepotism, right? Like these officers are not competent, you know. Especially in the last one, sucking up to you know yeah. Mariner because hey, get, give me a position. That's all. Those are all the hallmarks of a corrupt society that actually doesn't work. That you have to know someone to get things working. That's true in capitalism, but also in in these degenerate worker states. So, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that Starfleet isn't worth fighting for. The Federation is worth mm -hmm. fighting for these ideas. So, 
So for me, that's how I view these things is that these contradictions make sense to me because it actually has been represented in history before. And mm. the, the question is, how do you use those contradictions to move, to build upon what was successful, learn what didn't work, and then go forward from that? And I think for liberals, when you look at Star Trek, it's so, so aspirational and supposed to be so perfect from the, from the word jump from the get-go that any type of like um, shades of gray, right? So Section 31 and all those other stuff, right? They say, oh, it's a betrayal of the utopian vision, positive vision. For me, it's not a betrayal because it, it was never supposed to be this perfect thing. It's this, it's this walking contradiction. It's still a huge progressive step compared to what we have now. That's why it's still positive and still optimistic. It's still, I want to be in the Federation if I have the choice, but it's incomplete, right? It's incomplete in all these other ways. So that's how you can tell these actually good stories, right? The card story, the lower deck stories, Deep Space Nine, right? Like how to suss those things out. Um, you know, like in a way, I think being a Marxist has made me a better Star Trek fan and being a Star Trek fan has made me into a better Marxist because like, oh. I don't care as much about like, oh, you're ruined canon and that kind of stuff because like, it is inherently contradictory. You make yeah. the best of it yeah. uh, and you try to fit everything in. And that's the, that's the fun of being a fan and a Marxist, actually, is trying to make things kind of fit all together. Wow, that's interesting. Well, um, so this, this makes me wonder, like, um, what's been the reaction of Star Trek fans toward your uh, political activism uh, online? I know that you're active in many, many different Star Trek sites and groups. And I know that you uh, uh, you sort of delight in uh, the trolls that you get. There's this whole layer of conservative Star Trek fans, which I've never really understood. I mean, I understand folks who are attracted to more sort of militaristic kind of sci-fi like uh, Battlestar Galactica. I know that there's a whole sort of conservative militarism that attracts a certain kind of conservative fan there. But uh, there's a layer, too, within Star Trek. And I know that they really come after you for the kind of work that you do. So what's been the reaction to uh, you blending these two, uh, these two narratives in your work? Uh, it's, it's, it's been, it's been very fun. It's also very interesting. It's been very illuminating. Um, I would say uh, it actually is, is, is a sign of the times, right? The fact that um, I think that people that have such a strong reaction is, is a sign of actually, you know, the, the conditions that we find ourselves in, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, that polarization isn't inherently bad because it's a sign that um, that an answer that doesn't resolve any of these um, contradictions is an answer that's very lacking and very waning. And that's why people are being polarized. People are trying to find answers to these types of things, whether it's, uh, um, so for me, I think uh, actually being part of a, of a larger uh, political organization, a social organization, gives me kind of the discipline to say, hey, kind of ignore the trolls. Like, you know, if you're making them mad, it means at least people are, are, are listening, right? And more importantly, the people that are listening aren't the ones that are trolling you, really. It's the ones that are watching. They're watching how you interact, how you deal with that. The ones that may have some questions about socialism and communism, but may not want to ask May not want to may want may want to see how you deal with some of the haters and some of the the questions. So that's in reality who I'm always thinking of is mm. the people that are watching those interactions. I'm not going to convince those trolls. Like that's uh, beside the point. But the people that are watching those interactions, they may see like, wait a second, he keeps talking about this. He doesn't, you know, he keeps he's very positive about it. He he keeps on making this connection. Maybe there's something to it. Let me find out more. 
And finding out more is exactly what we want people to think because that's when we connect them with the larger ideas, right? It's not to necessarily win an argument online, which is, I think, uh, in years past, I may have done that or tried to argue with people. And I assume in, in that's human nature right, to argue with people that too. But it's understanding, okay, what's, what's the end goal here? The end goal is you want to actually connect uh, as many people as possible with the ideas uh, of Marxism, socialism, communism, how to actually organize and collectively understand your own power. What's the best way to do that? Is it arguing with people in like a thread somewhere about this? Or is it about using like some fun memes and, and don't take yourself too seriously, have a sense of humor about certain things and get them, you know, thinking, right? Get Plant those seeds and then maybe they'll reach out to you. If I go like, hey, you keep on talking about this. I want to know more. Hmm. And you may not, you may not win them, but at least you get them thinking. And guess what? Actually, most people actually want to learn more because that's actually oh. also something that's endemic uh, and very um, intrinsic to humans. They want to learn more. And once they start going, they want to learn more and more and more and more. And um, so with the with, with conservatives, I think reactionaries having that reaction, I think is um, they're embracing one part of, of, of Star Trek, which I think is a contradiction of Star Trek, right? Is it, it, it posits this um, new world. It posits this new post-scarcity world. But at the same time, it replicates you know, the nav- uh, the rank structure of a bourgeois Navy, right? The bourgeois Navy is the U.S. Navy, right? Yeah. Uh, it takes the, literally the name the USS, which is United States ship, right? So naval designation of the United States, right? Clearly written from the perspective of a show in 1967 during the height of the Cold War, right? Mm-hmm. They had to use the, you know, those aspects of, you know, gunboat diplomacy, right? All yeah. those types of things. that They had to, like, you know, mesh it in with something that they can kind of sell as well. And there are cons- and and you know there are conservative Star Trek fans, which is fine. I mean, because it's it's just a product. You can enjoy it, if, regardless of, of of your political persuasion per se. But what I like to use about Star Trek is that there are huge chunks of Star Trek which necessitate a revolutionary answer. It's not obvious, but it's there, right? But I think for people, they have that knee jerk reaction where like I only like it because it's a space navy and they have cool ships and you know explosions. I like ships. I like uniforms, obviously. I like, you know, uh, you know, action as well, like, of course, right? But it, it is, um, it's part of kind of what people were brought up with. It's like, well, there is no alternative to capitalism, right? So how can this something that I love so much that is kind of like a U.S. Navy or British Navy in space, how can that be communist? Communist was like the evil, the other, the, the adversary, right? And how can you, like, tie the two together, right? So, for people, that contradiction, I think, is what like gets them really riled up because it's like them for them like oil and, and vinegar or like oil and water. They're two so separate. Um, and I think the fact that I, for the most part, don't engage, keep things positive, like it's almost gets them like debate me. They want they want to debate me. They want to get the answer. And you know, the question is, I'm not there to win debates online. I'm there to connect with people as many people as possible. And uh, on the other side too. And like we mentioned earlier, the Federation is not communist because it is a state. There are still classes there. There, you see it in Lower Decks, where there are clearly a differentiation in classes in the Starfleet military hierarchy, right? So it's it's on the, on the flip side. When I say Star Trek is communist, you know, it's 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 aspects of it is communist, but overall, is the Federation communist? No, I mean it's a, it's a state that still operates, right? There's still those class distinctions. I would probably say that the Earth on United Earth in the 24th, 23rd centuries, that's likely communist. They've abolished the state on earth, at least. They don't have borders. They don't have classes on 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 the planet, which is why Cisco refers to it as paradise, right? 
But in other parts of the Federation, they probably have combined and uneven development. So that's a good question is like, how do you deal with these contradictions that emerge elsewhere, right? Um, and to use the example of Lower Decks once again is uh, uh, you see that 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 almost kind of antagonism between the Lower Decks and the, and the Upper Decks, right? When Mariner says, uh, we do all the work, they take all the credit. That's not a lie, right? It shows you that even in this great future, there's these contradictions. You know, the, the a crucial aspect of workers' control, as explained by Lenin, is the workers can elect their own leaders and recall their leaders at any time. Um, and that the, you know, as long as there's still um, a money system, that the, the leaders don't make more than the average worker. Um, what if Starfleet, what if the lower deckers elected their command crew, their senior staff, right? And if they didn't meet the muster, then they could be recalled at any time, right? It, it inverts kind of the, the top-down hierarchy. So those are the things on the other side where I say, you know, Star Trek is actually um, not quite there yet, but it's a step forward. And you use that to further explain what's necessary because people will then say there are imperfections in Star Trek. I don't necessarily want that either. Then you you have an answer to those things as well. I like that idea, right? So that you can use, actually use Star Trek to even further radicalize a political vision and to ask like what it's lacking to make it even more uh, progressive, more radical. Um, the, the science fiction author, David Brin, uh, once told me, uh, Star Trek is his, uh, sort of favorite, uh, universe, uh, compared for instance to Star Wars. And part of it is because he, he thinks that Star Wars this is his view, right? Is that it's deeply reactionary. Uh, and he thinks Star Trek is, is much better because, um, uh, the vision is of a cooperative future where people work together to problem solve. And I asked him once, well, what about this whole sort of military rank thing and uniforms and all this? He said, but the thing is, he said, the, that Starfleet, right, is not the U.S. Navy. It's the Coast Guard. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, the Navy has a, is, a, is a military. The Coast Guard has a different sort of function. It has a similar structure, but it has a different sort of mission, which is about uh, solving uh, problems at the, uh, the, the ocean's border, saving people. And so he said, so if you want to think about the vision of Starfleet, think about it more along those lines than uh, something like the U.S. Navy. So I, I think there are a lot of people who uh, think about these kinds of questions about the hierarchy. Uh, we just finished having a podcast with one researcher who uh, believes that the Federation is, in fact, an empire, uh, right? And so I think I like the way that you uh, sort of use the, the story to start pushing political ideas uh, to their sort of logical limit in this kind of way. Um, well, I, I want to ask th th this, this question uh, about your work. Where would you like to go with this? You know, what's your what's your hope? I know that you said that, you know, part of your political work is just to make connections and get people thinking about this. But within the Star Trek fandom, what would you like to what would you like to do with this? Would you like to uh, accomplish um, books about the work that you do? More appearances maybe at the cons? Would you like notice by the producers of some of the Star Trek series? Would you like to do a walk on on uh, one of the new iterations? Like where would you like uh, this work to go both in your advocacy and in the fandom? Well, I'll I'll say this. I I would be, I would be absolutely shocked and floored if 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 someone, if like a creation con or one of those big you know, corporate cons were like, let's bring on the Star Trek communists to our our panel. I would be like, is this a trap? Like, are, are, is this going to be some sort of weird like Kobayashi Maru test, right? Where it's like a no <laughs> right. scenario, right? Where like I wouldn't necessarily 
believe like they would want someone like me because I think ultimately that's another critique of what I, as much as I love fandom and I love fandom, I'm a big fan myself, fandom culture. And you see the evolution of con culture is a great way to do that as well. The, at the end of the day, they're there to make money and they're there to get as many beats, seats, uh, many butts and seats as possible, keep things moving, keep things going. So they can, they can't afford to alienate huge swaths of their fan base. And I think judging based off of the reaction I have online, they're like, yeah, should we bring on this, uh, this Star Trek communist? Should we bring on like the Star Trek fascist as well? Or like the Star Trek mm. crowd boy, right? Or whatever, right? Like they'll, they'll probably say those things where, like, we don't want to get political, but they'll try to as much as possible. And you see this in the recent ad campaigns with lots of companies actually, right? You know, with the pandemic, it was Black Lives Matter. Like, well, well love is love. And, you know, we're all right. in this together. And like, you know, um, we fight for, you know, and I think Star Trek was very uh, vocal and it's like fighting, advocating for black lives and getting people to donate to the NAACP. I mean, on the one hand, you know, that is a, it is a liberal answer, right? To say, you know, to donate to these NGOs, these nonprofits organizations do the good work. On the one hand, yeah, is, is that consistent with the liberal mindset? It is, right? For me, as a, as a communist, as a socialist, I would say, well, that's actually a very, that's a very typical liberal answer, right? Uh, is, uh, you want to uh, you want to get to the roots of, of of these issues as a company. You basically uh, should say your workers should unionize. They should actually call the shots. I mean, if CBS is really interested, if CBS and Paramount were really interested in fighting for Black Lives and racial justice, they should ensure that all their employees unionize. They get to dissolve their board of directors. Uh, they get to redistribute all the resources. Uh, you expo- uh, you open up your books, see how much the CEO gets paid, redistribute those resources, right? Uh, the workers get to choose their own pay scale, their own leadership. Uh, they get to choose their own work schedule. Seems something that I don't see BS and Paramount are probably likely not going to do, right? Um, but it shows you that is yet another example of how you explain these ideas of like, what is this, you know, push from certain companies to be like, hey, we're more socially active, more socially responsible. Ultimately, it's all for good branding, right? To say, hey, they care about those issues, right? Um, but in reality, it doesn't really hurt their bottom line that much to cut an ad, say, hey, you know, you know, we we care about these certain things because it doesn't really challenge their bottom line. Um, so that is a long way of saying, those are the things I would likely say at a panel or a, at a con. I don't think CBS Paramount would like that very much, but I would, I would, I'd be happy to prove wrong. Similarly, like I think it's the, it's the, it's the dream of of a Star Trek fan to be able to be on a walk-on role. I mean, that would be wonderful. Be on Memory Alpha, you know, for real. I mean, I, I would love it. What fan wouldn't love it? Uh, you know, I think uh, there are some wonderful cosplayers out there that would also deserve the opportunity. Everyone deserves opportunities. So, I mean. I would love to do those things. I don't, I don't have any illusions that, you know, people are knocking down my door to kind of get the Star Trek communist on like San Diego Comic-Con, but mm-hmm. who's to say, but I think, um, you know, writing a book and writing stuff like that, um, maybe, but I think uh, that as most people know, I think writing a book takes a lot of time, takes, mm-hmm. takes a lot of, of years of research and something that's not uh, out of their own possibility. But I think, uh, maybe writing more. I think writing for my organization's newspaper called socialrevolution.org, you know, writing uh, analysis using pop culture is a great entry point for people um, to get these ideas. In a lot of ways, uh, we had a great article not too long ago that wrote about, from a Marxist perspective, why are there so many dang Marvel movies and why do they seem so mm. incredibly similar to each other? They all seem to be remakes of remakes of remakes, remakes, phase four, phase five, and six of these grand cinematic universes, right? Everyone wants a cinematic universe. 
there's a material reason, right? There's a material reason why they the corporations are just remining certain things. They really right. have nothing left to do. They really have nothing left to kind of uh, profit off of, right? So they try to go back uh, to their back catalog, use their intellectual property. But what is intellectual property, right? It's mm. private property. So, so again, that's probably a long roundabout answer of saying, um, I just hope that, you know, whatever I do right now inspires others to, to kind of also uh, use their passion, use their fandom to hopefully make those connections in real life to an actual real life class struggle, that there is something you can do right now. Lennon wrote a book called What is to be done? There is a lot to be done in order to actually um, achieve a socialist revolution. And um, being part of an organization is the first step. Understanding these ideas is the first step. Um, once enough people have the right ideas, that's when ideas become a material force. And I think that's what we're trying to be able to do is being able to get to a point where we can actually have reached millions of people. We're not there yet, but that's when it really has uh, a social and uh, material force. Uh, you saw that this past summer mm. with the huge inspiring protests around George Floyd and, and it happened in every state in the United States and it happened in eight plus countries around the world. Right. Uh, it was tremendously inspiring. But imagine thinking that that is actually just the first step. Imagine the next struggle that's going to come. Imagine if all of those protests were linked up to uh, labor struggles in the, and uh, the actions of the trade unions. Imagine if uh, you shut down parts of the economy in solidarity for Black lives. And that kind of happened in a very small part on June 19th in Oakland, right. where um, there was a shutdown of the Port of Oakland, a strike for Black lives. Uh, it happened for one day, and it was a great event. But imagine that happened around the world, around the country, for an extended period of time. So the the, po the ports on the West Coast, the ports on the East Coast shut down. That's really what the ruling class is deathly afraid of. Once the once the workers realize that's the power they truly have, um, that's what we're getting towards. That's what we're building towards. But we have to be able to reach so many more people, and then able to get, the kid, get them to really understand these ideas. Take some time. Uh, but if Star Trek helps in that regard, if, if uh, some Star Trek memes and cosplay helps in that regard, I mean, that's just, that's just fun. That's just, that's just uh, icing on the, on the, you know, um, peptide cake or what, what's the word that, that Troy turned into that cake? Uh, right, right. Uh, sell your peptide cake with uh, mint frosting, right? So that's yeah. just, um, that's just an extra and bonus. Uh, please uh, let us know what you think. Send us some comments down below and talk to us about the work that we're doing here. If you're interested in finding out more about the Anaris Project, you can find us at Anaris Project on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. You can also check out our website, which is anaresproject.org. We'll also have available down below some links to some of the organizations that uh, Will Wynn belongs to and where he does some of his work and where you can find out more about the Star Trek communist. So thanks very much for spending some time with us here at Trek Wars at OSU. Live long and prosper. <laughs>